0: Paul chooses to close out the eighth chapter of Romans. And I start with the end of this chapter for a very particular reason, because if there's only one thing you remember today, if I could preach this sermon in a sentence, it would be that nothing can separate you from the love of God. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus by which we are saved, we're called to live a life in pursuit of sanctification, Now, we know, church, that sanctification is being separated from sin and set apart to serve God. Separation from sin and set apart to serve God. What does that mean? That means the closer we get to God, the further away we get from sin. Why? Because the more that we have community with God, the more we begin to look like him, the less we begin to desire sin. The how-to, if you will, for the journey of sanctification is in Romans chapter 8. Thus far in our seven-week series, uh, we've been researching as a church the book of Romans. Just as a reminder, the book of Romans is a collection of theological arguments written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. He had not at this time visited the church in Rome. He didn't know them. He had never been there. So essentially what this is, is his how to be a Christian 101. I was watching a series of video lectures uh, recommended to me by Pastor Manny and conducted by Dr. Frank Turk. And in these video lectures, he divides the book of Romans into two categories. Romans chapters 1 through 11, dealing with how to get right with God. And Romans chapters 12 through 26, how to live right for God. Romans 8 is the epicenter of the first section and debatably of the entire book. It has been called the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of Christian faith. The tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden, the highest peak in a range of mountains. Such are some of the metaphors used by interpreters who extol chapter 8 as the greatest passage within what so many consider to be the greatest book in Scripture. Our series that we've been uh, giving in Romans, the theme is transformed. Be transformed transformed. Our theme verse is Romans 12, one through two. And it says, therefore, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans is a heavy book. It's uncomfortable to read, and it's even more uncomfortable to apply. You can't read Romans without being challenged. That's how the Apostle Paul wrote it on purpose. When we read Romans, we are positioned at a crossroads. Will we serve God and grow in his righteousness and sanctification, or will we continue to allow the flesh to pull us and gain Our dependence upon it. On my way to uh, church this morning, this is why it's not in my notes, uh, I, I felt the Holy Spirit leading me to two questions to ask today. The first question is, are you satisfied with casual faith? The second question is, is God satisfied with casual faith? If the answers to those two questions are not the same in your life, You have a reason to pay attention and review so that we can grow closer to God. You can't read this book without being challenged. We're forced face to face with our selfish habits and we have to put everything on the altar. And that's what I would encourage you today. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God and ask him to burn away anything that doesn't line up with the teachings of scripture. Paul is taking us on a journey of sanctification, of assurance, and of hope. My question to you today is, will you be transformed? Father, thank you for this time that we're able to come and worship you and gather together. I pray that we would learn from the words of the Apostle Paul this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Keeping with this theme of transformation, I've divided the the, uh, chapter eight of Romans into three sections. The first is transformation brings life in the spirit. That's verses one through 13. The second section, transformation brings adoption through the spirit. That's verses 14 through 17. And the third is transformation brings hope and expectation. That's verses 17 through 39. We're going to jump right in with that first section. Transformation brings life in the spirit. In Romans 8, 1 through 13, several themes kind of come to the forefront for Paul. The main one that I would present to you today is this inner war between the flesh and the spirit. Now, when Paul refers to the Spirit in this chapter, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. This word in Greek is pneuma, and it translates to what we understand as the Holy Spirit. Pneuma occurs 21 times just in Romans chapter 8, and all but two of those reference the Holy Spirit. Mathematically, that translates to the Holy Spirit being referenced in Romans chapter 8 almost every two verses. It's a pretty important part Of This particular chapter one commentator notes Paul's focus here is on what the spirit does And perhaps this is the best way to learn about the spirit For as important as it may be to define the nature of the holy spirit and his relation to christ and the father The spirit is best known in his ministry on behalf of christians It is those blessings and privileges conferred on believers by the spirit that are the theme of this chapter If you have your Bible today, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So I took the liberty of highlighting a few of these key themes in Romans for you today. If we read it with just the uh, highlighted words, um, we can sounds kind of like this. Flesh, minds, flesh, spirit, minds, spirit, mind, flesh, mind, spirit, mind, flesh. So can you guess what Paul is wanting to communicate here? There's three very important things. Can you guess what they are? The spirit, the mind, and the flesh. The mind is so important. The mind determines the actions of the body. In neurobiology, this is known as voluntary actions being controlled by the motor cortex in the frontal lobe of the cerebrum. At least that's what Google told me. In other words, your brain or your mind decides what you do. So if your mind determines your actions... What influences your mind? Biblically speaking, either the flesh or the spirit are going to influence your mind, which influences your actions. Our default nature, church, is to be controlled by the flesh. I'll give you an example. You don't typically have to teach a child to be selfish. Selfishness is part of the flesh. The flesh is who we are. We actually have to reprogram our wiring through the spirit. And that's what Paul is telling us. That's why in verse seven, it says the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. By default, what Paul is saying here is we are incapable of pleasing God. The mind governed by the flesh is incapable of doing so. And as long as we remain in the realm of the flesh, we will be unable to do so. On our own, we're simply not enough. That's not a very popular message today, especially in a world where the primary message is you are enough. Church, I'm here to tell you today, you are not enough. (laughs) You are not enough. We're only enough when we adopt the mindset of the spirit Crucify our flesh, our very nature, and make decisions that are in line with the things of God. Our pre Christ state was incapable of denying our flesh, our very nature. We were owned by it. That's not okay anymore. When we accept Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit, our nature is no longer our master. Our nature is transformed in the likeness of the spirit through our submission to Christ. This concept of Christ likeness is so important. Why is it important? Because the closer we get to God, the further away we get from sin. Perpetual sin is actually not okay for the life of the believer. That's why Paul says those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. He goes on to say, starting in verse 12, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. As Christians, it's our responsibility to allow the Holy Spirit who lives in us to guide our decision-making, leading us away from sin and deeper into sanctification. We're not called to be perfect, but we are instructed to put to death the misdeeds of the body by the power of the spirit. That's what Paul is saying here. So there's a couple of practical ways that we can do this because it's easy to say, oh, I want to be led by the Spirit. But what does that mean? Like that's, that's one of those Christianese terms. It's like you only know it if you've like studied specifically. So, so what, what does it mean actually to be led by the Spirit? There's two ways. They're very practical. The first is to read the Bible. The second is to allow the Holy Spirit to convict our actions. Why is it important for the Christian to read the Bible. It's important because the Bible is our main way of determining right from wrong. In the Bible, the church is compared to a bride, the bride of Christ. In order to have a relationship with Christ, we need to know who he is. We need to be in his word. If we truly are the bride of Christ, We have to be diligent about pursuing that relationship. For those of you who are married in the room, it would probably be difficult to have a relationship with your spouse that's solid if you only spend time with them an hour every Sunday. Right? So why would we expect our lifestyle with Christ to be any different? It takes more than an hour in church each week to have a strong relationship with Christ. Our lives are filled with entertainment and somehow God seems to get the smallest amount of our time. This is dangerous. It's dangerous because we're a product of the content we allow our minds to consume. We spend hours and hours every day scrolling social media and wonder why we have a problem with our self-image, right? But the Bible tells me that I'm created in the image of God. Which one of those two is gonna win? It's gonna be the one that you fill yourselves up with. The content you allow your mind to consume determines who you are. We don't prioritize the things of the spirit. We prioritize entertainment all too often. We have to stop allowing the mind of the flesh to govern our decisions and base our decisions off of Scripture. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, church, when you study Scripture and find yourselves in the crossroads of a decision where you are attempting to distinguish right from wrong, the Holy Spirit will bring that which you have studied to your remembrance. How do I know that? Because it's in the Bible. John 14, 26 says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Do you want a mind that's governed by the spirit today, church? Then we've got to be pursuing that and fill our minds with the teachings of scripture. The second thing is we need to allow the Holy Spirit to convict our actions. We all know the feeling when we're doing something we're not supposed to be doing, right? It's that terrible, uncomfortable feeling, right? I would encourage you to listen to that feeling. John 16, 8 says, And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. As Christians, we believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and will convict us of our wrongdoing. It is in and through this conviction that we're able to put to death the misdeeds of the body, as Paul references in verse 13. We've got to allow the spirit to transform us into the men and women of God that we are destined to be. But in order to do that, it's imperative that we surrender our desires and selfish ambitions, choosing to walk in the spirit we've probably all heard the phrase, be all you can be, right? Be all you can be, be all you can be. I need to tell you today that if your goal is to be all you can be, you will fall short because it only involves you. Transformation doesn't happen when you simply determine to be all you can be. Transformation happens when you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh and stop living according to your sinful nature, which you have been separated from by the work of the Spirit. Paul is saying, Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That takes us right into section two. I wish I could say that it gets lighter in section two, but it doesn't. If you're uncomfortable, please blame Paul, not me. I wish I had his email to throw up on the screen. (laughs) Transformation brings adoption through the spirit. Verse 14 through 17. Romans 8, 14. For those who are led by the spirit are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. We're adopted into the family of God By the power of the Spirit and the gift of Jesus. When we accept Jesus, we become adopted. But that's not the end of our journey. Because once we are accepted and once we accept Christ, there is an expectation. The expectation for the adopted, according to Paul, is that we live by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. The sobering part of this statement is that the converse must also be true. Those who are not led by the spirit are not the children of God. In other words, in order to be a child of God, we've got to be led by the spirit. And in order to be led by the spirit, we can't be led by the flesh. So if someone examined your life today from the outside looking in, not knowing you are a follower of Christ, would it be obvious to them that you are an individual who is led by the spirit? The people that you hang out with influence your decisions. They influence how you act, how you behave. I told the first service when I came here back to North Carolina, I dressed like a Floridian, right? Now I'm trying to dress like Pastor Manny because Pastor Manny looks good all the time, y'all. He's like my fashion goals right there. Y'all notice I'm wearing Chelsea's today and not Jordan's, but me and Manny switched. I was like, I'm gonna look like Manny and then he shows up in Jordan's and I feel left out today. The people you hang out with, they influence who you are. So if I dress like Pastor Manny, And walk around people who have no idea who Pastor Manny is. They're at least going to know how he dresses. Is that fair? They may not make that connection. But they're going to know in some way. Pastor Manny is going to influence their life through fashion. Spiritually speaking. The people around you should be able to tell. That your life is being led by the spirit. Because everything about you should be of the spirit, right? Everything about you should, in, should be influenced by the Holy Spirit. This is some, some, this is some heavy stuff, y'all. So let's just, let's just take a deep breath, okay? Everybody breathe in and breathe out, right? It's going to be okay. This is a heavy chapter. Again, if I had Paul's email, I would throw it on the screen. The good news here, though, is that Paul really isn't talking about Christian perfection, the expectation for us is not perfection. Everybody say amen. amen. Whew, I'm glad about that. The expectation, though, because there is an expectation, it is being led by the Spirit. As we grow closer to God through the Spirit, we grow further away from our sin. Because light and darkness don't mix We understand that sanctification is this process by which we surrender to God and our lives are transformed by the power of the Spirit, separating us from sin and getting us closer to God. But this is a process and it does take effort. Something very important to note is that apathy is the enemy of sanctification. Apathy is the enemy of sanctification. We are called to examine ourselves, purge anything that doesn't line up with the Spirit. So what lines up with the Spirit? I will tell you, because guess what? It's in the Bible. Galatians 5, through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you do nothing else this week... To better your spiritual journey. Memorize that verse. Why? Why do we need to memorize that verse? Because if we're living according to the spirit. Our actions need to line up with the fruit of the spirit. If we're living according to the spirit. Every decision we make should in some way represent that spiritual truth. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Every decision, every action, every thought that we have should be able to bear witness to one of those truths at least. So the question today is what aspects of your life do not bear the fruit of the Spirit? It's a question we all have to ask ourselves. And if we're humble, the Holy Spirit will reveal that answer to us in the form of conviction. Conviction is a good thing. The closer you get to God, the more convicted you feel. Because the closer you get to God, the more you experience his righteousness, the more disgusted you become with your own sin. Right? That's why Paul in in chapter 7, which we studied last week, that's why he's talking about the law. Why could the law not save you? Because if you're just trying to obey the rules, you're going to fall. Because the only measurement is the rules. But when you actually are growing closer to the spirit, you don't need as many rules because when you watch the things of God, the things of the spirit, your life begins to line up with that. You become, di- uh, you. Uh, the things of this world are distasteful to you as you grow closer to God in this journey of sanctification. The problem today is that oftentimes we believe this lie that if it's comfortable, then it must be good for me. And if it's uncomfortable, then it must be a bad thing. So, this leads to our standard of morality being lessened, and us looking like the world in normalizing sin. So, so what if I complain twenty four seven? I just need to vent, right? Just, I just need to vent. What, what if I'm sleeping with my girlfriend? Oh, why would I take relationship advice from a book that's like two thousand years old? <sighs> Right, I just I told a little lie at work, but it was a little white lie. It was okay. Never hurt anybody. It was actually for the person's good, so I wouldn't like you know, get into any trouble with them. Right, church, we've gotten good oftentimes at looking like the world. Our standard is comfort. We hate the feeling of conviction. But if you're living according to the Spirit, you will feel convicted of things you shouldn't be doing, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It should actually be a relief to us because it means we're hearing from the spirit and we have the choice to adhere to the conviction or reject it. But I want to encourage you to choose wisely because Paul says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. This is a sobering chapter. This is one of the reasons I started with the last verse to keep in mind where we're going. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church, that's where we're going in this chapter. I started at the end because... It's going to get even heavier before we get there. And again, I'm going to try to get Paul's email for us. Romans eight seventeen has two promises for believers. It says, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So there's two things that we're guaranteed, suffering and glory, Y'all, I will be the first to admit, there are some passages in the Bible I wish had not been written. They make me uncomfortable. This is one of them. I'm, I'm, I like the glory part, but I don't really like the suffering part. But whether or not I like that it's in there does not determine whether or not it's true or beneficial. So it does get a little bit heavier before it gets lighter. But remember this, we have to stop expecting Life to be perfect and instead prepare our response to disruption. We have to stop expecting life to be perfect and instead prepare our response to disruption. Those of you who know me know that I am a thrill seeker. I like fast cars and motorcycles, I like driving them fast. That's the reason I have a truck that doesn't go fast and a Harley that is not a sport bike. Because I appreciate a thrill. I could live off adrenaline. I love adrenaline. (laughs) One of my dreams in life is to go to Africa and hunt a lion with a bow. I would love to do that. In January, I was in Puerto Rico with my fiance and her family. And I got the chance to ride the longest zip line in North America. It's called the Monster. It's 1.57 miles long. You go 95 miles per hour. And it's 1246 feet high that's not above sea level that's you're suspended holding on just with a cable and you can see 1200 feet down to this rocky river i loved it it was awesome (laughs) so it's probably no surprise to you that i am a roller coaster fanatic i like roller coasters are there any roller coaster fans in the house yes okay great so uh, outside of the eight years that I lived in Florida, I've had a carowin' season pass since I mean since since I was eligible to have a carowin' season pass and wasn't free anymore. <laughs> um, when I was like, as soon as I was old enough to ride um, Afterburn, which uh, at the time was called Top Gun, um, I, I w- had enough courage to wait in the line. I was so excited. I got to the ride and I was like, No, I'm good. I tried to back out. My mom was behind me and said, No, you're getting on this ride. <laughs> So I did. And I loved every minute of it. Have never looked back. In 2012, I decided uh, me and my brother were going to take a trip to Virginia with some of our friends to King's Dominion to ride the Intimidator 305. You can put the picture of it on the screen. This was before Fury 325 was ever a thing at Carowinds. And in 2010, when this ride was built, it was the number one new roller coaster in the world. It's 305 feet tall, and it goes straight into a curve where you hit 90 miles per hour. The ascension of the first hill is 13.2 miles per hour, and it takes something like 20 or 30 seconds to get to the top. That gives you a lot of time to rethink all of your life choices that led you to that moment. When you get into that first turn, it's an 85, de- uh, excuse me, it's a 270 degree turn going 90 miles per hour, pulling 4.5 Gs. Have you ever, uh, have you seen the new uh, Top Gun movie, the new one? Okay, so they're flying F-35 fighter jets. F-35 fighter jets are capable of pulling 9 Gs. This roller coaster was 4.5 Gs. It was famous for making people black out in the first turn. We rode it 14 times that day (laughs) because I went there to ride that roller coaster. Every single time in that first curve, I lost the ability to see because I could see the blood draining out of my face. My eyesight went from normal to red to gray and almost to black. Have you ever been in a situation like that where your eyes are open and you can't see but a bunch of random colors? It was weird. It was very trippy, y'all. I loved it, though. I did. It was a little uncomfortable, but I I appreciated it. I enjoyed it. Why? Because I expected it. I had prepared for months for that ride. I read the statistics over and over again. I knew the percentage of people that would black out on that first turn. I knew to squeeze my stomach in and put my butt at the back of the seat to make sure that I was all good. I was prepared for it. I still almost blacked out every time, but I was prepared for it. If I got out of bed this morning and 4.5 G's hit me in the face, I wouldn't have had the same response because I wouldn't be prepared for it. In Romans 8:17, Paul tells us to prepare for it. I couldn't change the amount of turns that were in that roller coaster. I couldn't change the drops. I couldn't change the G-force. I couldn't change the fact that it was going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Once I made the decision that I was on the ride, I had two choices. Live in fear or put my hands in the air and enjoy the ride. Section three, transformation brings hope and expectation. Learning to enjoy the roller coaster was not based on what the roller coaster was doing. I couldn't grit my teeth hard enough to change the structure of the roller coaster. The hill was going to be 305 feet. The turn was going to be 270 degrees and it was going to be 90 miles per hour. There was no amount of physical discomfort that I could cause my brain before I got on it that would change the trajectory of the roller coaster. The spiritual parallel for us today is that when we live a life transformed by the spirit, our hope is not circumstantially dependent. It doesn't matter what storms life brings. My hope is not based on something as fleeting as my current situation. Biblically, this is called eschatological hope. Eschatological is a fancy theological term. It comes from two Greek words, eschata and logos. Eskata means end times and logos means word. What we understand that to mean is hope that is not based on the now. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That is eschatological hope. There's a commentary I like, and it says, By saying that Christians groan in themselves, Paul suggests that these groans are not verbal utterances, but inward, nonverbal sighs indicative of a certain attitude. This attitude does not involve anxiety about whether we will finally experience the deliverance God has promised, for Paul has no doubt about this. That's eschatological hope but frustration at the remaining moral and physical infirmities that are inevitably a part of this period between justification and glorification, combined with longing for the end of this state of weakness. Life is uncomfortable. But that doesn't have to be the end of hope. Why? Because nothing can separate you from the love of God. When we get bogged down by transient things, we miss out on focusing on the eternal hope we have in Jesus. Will we groan inwardly? Yes. Every time I rode that roller coaster, that first turn was terrible. It was very uncomfortable. So yes, we do groan. It's a scriptural guarantee. But groaning doesn't have to be laced with anxiety or insecurity. In our groaning we are certain that our redemption we are certain of our redemption and it is in our redemption, not our present circumstances, in which our hope is found and maintained. I think the last few verses of Romans chapter 8 are the most important because it guarantees us our eternal security. Romans 8:33 through 34 says, "Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. We can't earn salvation on your own. You will never be enough. We have only to accept salvation. And then we have this promise, for I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we accept Christ and are filled with the Spirit, we operate according to the Spirit. We surrender the will of the flesh to the will of the Spirit. We allow the Spirit to convict us of sin and commit to serving Christ When we live this way, our life becomes characterized by eschatological hope. And we can rest assured that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist church, went reluctantly to a church service where he heard the pastor preaching on Romans. He wrote afterwards, while the minister was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, i felt my heart strangely warmed i felt that i did trust in christ christ alone for my salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins even mine and saved me from the law of sin and death just as wesley said transformation through christ is a genuine work of the spirit that takes our sinful hearts and purifies us Washing us in the blood of Christ and giving us assurance of our eternal hope. One theologian theologian has said, Victory for the Lord and those who seek him is assured because nothing can thwart his purposes. Church, as we stand and prepare to go back into worship, Christ has taken away your sins. You don't have to live captive to them any longer, but it is your choice. Will you live according to the flesh or will you be transformed and redeemed by the power of the Holy Spirit?